0: Holy and gracious Father, we do thank you for this day. Father, this is a time each year when we set aside uh, this time of worship to remember those in who, whose, spirit, uh, whose lives your spirit dwelt and whose lives your spirit worked and transformed. Father, we remember those who were, were kind to us, special to us, uh, those grandmothers and grandfathers, mothers and fathers, all those, Lord, who have been been an influence in our lives and have taught us from a young age what it means to follow Jesus. We thank you, O Lord, that this day we can come and feel their, their special presence again. And know that we are never alone, Father, that even as we walk this earth, there is a great cloud of witnesses above us, watching us and cheering us on. Father, we pray that we too, one day, when we join them, will sing with joy the chorus of praise to you and your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose precious name we pray. And now, Father, together, we repeat that statement of faith that the church has recited for centuries. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.
1: Amen. Good morning. Good morning. Let us say together the prayer for guidance. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit that as your scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear for what you say to us today. Amen. Amen. Good morning and I, again. And I'm going to be reading from Romans chapter 12, 9 through 21. And you can find this on page 162 in your prayer Bible. In your pew Bibles. Marks of the Christian. We love... Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with mutual affection, undo, outdo one another in showing honor, do not lag in zeal, but be ardent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in suffering, preserve in prayer, contribute to the needs of the Evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of God. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Be love, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, "Vengeance is mine; I will repay," said the Lord. Know if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by, the doing, by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks. The of God.
0: Thank you, Gail. And thank you, choir, for House of the Rising Sun this morning. (laughs) Amen. Amen. What Gail just read in the entire 12th chapter of Romans, I would love if we could have read the first eight eight verses. Uh, That would have been a lengthy reading for her. But I would encourage you to go back and and look up Romans chapter 12 this week. I, I had this feeling like I should challenge you to memorize that whole chapter. If a church wanted a value statement for their church, what we stand for, uh, I think Romans 12 is it. In many ways, it reflects the Sermon on the Mount and the values that Jesus was teaching about loving your enemies, uh, about doing good to those who uh, despicably use you. And and that very last, uh, do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's really what the church is about. When this family has been put together, as Paul describes in the opening verses that Gail did not read, when we each come in with different gifts and different roles to play within the body, ultimately what we are in this world to do is to overcome evil with good. The good of God and Jesus Christ on that cross. Every good that we can do to somebody to reflect the light of Christ. I saw a headline the other day and it said, Americans hate each other more than ever. And I thought, well, the Civil War, I think there was a little bit of hate there. But this was a major news source that put that out there, and they just went on and they gave, gave evidence of the hatred that resides in our country. And much, much of it is hatred that is reserved for people who we don't really know very well. People who are in some classification, they have a label, a political party, or whatever it may be. And, and so. Uh, People are expressing very strong words in opposition to people, other people, and in judging them uh, harshly and not listening. We don't listen to each other, and we're not showing the compassion for those who disagree with us that uh, the Bible challenges us for. So more than ever, it is important that the church exists in this atmosphere of division and hate to shine the light. The light shines brightest in the darkest moments. And that we should not compromise what God teaches us in order to enculturate ourselves or to become one with the culture, which sometimes we're tempted to do. I I, I believe that sometimes we we divide our lives into compartments. We compartmentalize our lives and say, I have my political life over here, I have my social life, I have my private life, I have different things. And we kind of let God have some say in some of those compartments, but we pretty much exclude him in others. But the challenge of Paul is that this... Being church and being Christian is not a part-time compartmentalized challenge. It's to, as he said in the very opening of this chapter, it is to make your lives a living sacrifice for God. Why? Because of the mercy that he has shown us. Uh, when we think of the mercy of God in our lives, uh, the giving of a family... faith that you can come to, uh, the giving of a family, uh, a physical family that uh, may not have always been the best, (laughs) may at times have uh, been uh, terribly, uh, terribly uh, a poor example of what a family could be. But still, God puts us into places and situations so that we can develop and grow, we can overcome, we can be strengthened, we can become more like his son, Jesus Christ. I knew a man... um, Some years ago, back in the early 80s, uh, we had a publishing company, our family, and we had uh, about a quarter million dollars of typesetting equipment. that was new. It was state-of-the-art. Uh, addressograph, multigraph, who uh, since the beginning of the 1900s had produced those little address plates that people would uh, ink and then stamp the address. You got a lot of mail with those that addressograph, multigraph stuff. Well, eventually, they saw the change. They went into computers, and they had this computerized typesetting equipment. Uh, Carolyn, do you want to uh, show that? I think the next slide. And I met a man. He was... He was had written a book, and he had bought for himself. He spent $20,000 to get this computer that was in his basement in a house in Lake Ridge, Virginia, which is part of Woodbridge, in a townhouse. He lived there by himself. He was a widower. He was, was a retired professor of history and theology. Brilliant man. Not only did he write that one volume, he had 18 volumes of that same work. 600 pages each. And when he went to have it published, it was called the Renaissance New Testament. It was a combination of commentary and and, and and Greek and everything flowing through the New Testament. Just the New Testament. 18 volumes that he had worked on. And it was brilliant. But when he went to have it typeset, they were going to charge him so much to do this. Especially because he had the Greek letters and everything had to be part of it. It was a very complex sort of thing. He went to this company and he uh, got this computer and uh, and sat in his basement doing the typesetting himself. Well, the company called me up because we were a big customer and they said, uh, we have somebody who's located very close to you. Would you mind going over and visiting him? Because he's having some trouble and we don't have anybody that can get down there right now from New York. So if you could go do that, we would really appreciate it. I asked them if they would pay off our lease. They didn't do that, but I, I, I still went, and I got there, and uh, he was sort of a proud man. I mean, you know, the thing was, he was brilliant, and so he, uh, he sort of had that mentality some of us have that we can figure anything out on our own, and so he had refused any training. He had not taken any classes on this equipment. And uh, and you got to remember at this point, this was one of the you know, you're in the early stages of people having computers in their home or in their offices, and so it wasn't like today. Do you remember? Were you around at the time when if you wanted a computer you had to go take a class on DOS, MS DOS, or whatever. there were no Windows. Uh, there was no Windows program. There there, there were no mice. Uh, you know, well, there were mice, but not that kind of mouse. It was it was a very uh, very different age to live in. He needed to be trained on this thing, but he he thought he could just figure it out himself. So I went there and and, and uh, you know we talked for a while and I learned about him and then he um, I said, well, why don't we just sit down and show me how you have been using this. Because he was very upset because he wasn't getting any return on his money because it was taking forever, he said, to do the typesetting. So we sat down and he filled that whole screen up with type. And then he went back and he stopped and he's looking and he's proofreading and he sees an error up in the first line. And he takes the backspace key. He's not aware of the, the errors, the cursors that he could have just gone... He takes the backspace key and erases everything back to the error, corrects the error, and then retypes everything going down. And I was thinking about that the other day. Um, uh, By the way, his uh, 18-volume work was featured in Publishers Weekly when they did a special thing on on religious books and everything. He was very successful with this. You can still go on Amazon. Uh, This was 1981, and you can, you can get copies of the Renaissance New Testament. So I was thinking about him the other day, and I thought that in many ways, people, when they come into the church and we become Christians, they're sort of like Dr. Yeager. They think they can figure this out on their own. It's pretty simple. And they've heard enough snippets and pieces and all of what Christianity is about. They don't really need anybody to come and train them. They don't need to open up the manual here, you know, the Bible. It's okay. I got this thing figured out. You just be nice to people. That's what it's all about, right? And then people got to be nice to me too because now I'm their brother in Christ. So they owe me something. And they kind of developed this this uh, self-Christianity uh, system that just doesn't work. It just doesn't work any more than that typesetting worked for Dr. Yeager. Because he didn't understand all the features that were there and the intricacies and the ways he could use it to best advantage. And it's the same with us as Christians that we have to, we have to sometimes sit down with the Word, not sometimes, all the time, sit down with God's Word. We have to sit down in prayer. We have to sit down in a Sunday school class. We have to, we have to be trained up. And it's a continuous lifetime process because we can never reach the end of God's knowledge. And when I looked at Romans 12, I thought that if we were going to start anywhere in the Bible, aside from the gospel story of Jesus Christ, you could start there and then say, but why did he die? What was behind that? And you can go to Romans 12 and you can see there what this is all about and what God is ultimately asking us to do. He isn't asking us just to be nice people in the, in the cultural, societal sense of being nice. He is asking us to be nice in an extraordinarily self-effacing, self-sacrificing sort of way, which, he says, ironically, will lead you to true joy. Now, that's the irony of Christianity. It asks you to give up so that you might gain. It asks you to put others first So that you might know what it is to be Jesus Christ and to reign with Him one day forever. It asks you to humble yourself in the body of Christ rather than to be proud. And this is something the church has had a history and something that's bothered me for a long time is our history of putting, of of raising people up, which sometimes can take the form of idolatry, whether it's a great preacher, and I know y'all do this for me. I know y'all. You know, there's there's a lot of Bob worship out there, but and you understand that sometimes people will do that on your own, and you may not have control over that. But there there have been in history people who raised themselves up, and you know, and we have the we 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 dress in certain ways, and we uh, we try in every way to differentiate ourselves from the people around us. And when I read Romans 12, I see a very different sort of church out there. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. He tells you, okay, this is the reason I'm asking you to do this. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. To, to take this body and to worship God with it in every action that you do. And I know how hard that is. Anybody here find that easy? Anybody here find it easy? Uh, hard to compartmentalize your lives. I've done that at times in my Christian life. I've taken something and set it aside. Yeah, if I go to the Nationals game, I can yell and scream at that umpire all I want. You know, I don't have to be nice to him, you know. And uh, I don't drink beer, but maybe I'm going, I'm going to drink a few too many beers, and maybe I'm going to, maybe a, a bad word's going to come and slip out occasionally, you know. Because it's a Nats game, and it's okay, and God doesn't really go to Nats games, right? Except for this year, apparently, he did. (laughs) We find places in our lives that we can just sort of say, "Uh, God, I'm going away for a little bit, and I'll be back later. And we think God doesn't care about that. But here he is saying, not to conform to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's an ongoing, lifelong process of renewing your mind every day and every week. And then he goes on and talks about uh, how we should not think of ourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Be as as, uh, objectively judgmental of yourself as you are with others. Does anybody ever find themselves doing that? Do you ever stop for a moment and think, as I'm criticizing the preacher, I'm going to get personal here on this, that he hadn't been looking at our side enough lately. You know? That he, uh, that he messed up the service and the choir was supposed to sing the anthem and he got it out of order. What kind of preacher do we have here? And you know the simple excuse is i 'm sixty four my mind is going, and it 's not going to be very long before i i can 't do this anymore, but you know uh, but then I start to think, well, how can they criticize me for that? But then I realize I turn right around and have the same thoughts in my mind. you know, preachers, we have that pecking order i 'm going to judge the district superintendent, the bishop i 'm going to notice their errors i 'm going to talk about it to others i 'm going to be that gossip and you know, we all, all do that. But he's saying, don't do that. But judge yourself with sober judgment, meaning uh, don't go out and drink and, and, and see yourself as some hero, but, but uh, by sober it doesn't just uh, apply to alcohol, but with a serious sort of judgment. Judge yourselves and not just others. This, uh, this body of Christ that we're in, this family of God that we're in, has a lot of different members and we each have a different purpose and we should honor each other. For that purpose, no matter what the purpose may be. The greatest Christian in the last church that I served at before coming here, the one that I was at the 50th anniversary for recently, the greatest Christian in that church, if I was the judge, would have been Bobby, the janitor. And I'm not just saying that because, oh, that sounds so great. The janitor is the best Christian. Every time I saw him, every time I saw him, I would say, how are you doing, Bobby? And he would say, blessed by the best. And as I went on to, to get to know Bobby more and more, I never saw in nine years there a different Bobby any day. He was always the same, the same attitude, the same willingness to help, the same willingness to do whatever. And then I'm thinking, well, he's just a janitor. I went on and found out that he had quite a family. He had a, a sister who was a colonel in the Air Force. Uh, She died of cancer a few years ago. His father was a preacher. They had nine children. Several of those became preachers. And he was such an influential and well-known preacher in North Carolina that two presidents had gone out of their way to visit him in his home. And so Lydia and I were traveling through North Carolina and we went off to visit him also and they opened their house up and we went in there and I realized this is why Bobby is the way he is. The hospitality. The genuine sense of love in that household. They didn't just live it at the church building, they were living it in their home. And then it went on and it became a light in that church up in Chesapeake, Virginia. As Bobby reminded us, That it isn't about what you do in this world, but how you do it. And here Paul is saying, do it with love. Do it with sober judgment of who you are. Recognize that that we are dependent on each other and we couldn't make it without the janitors. We couldn't make it uh, without the the pianists. We couldn't make it uh, without all of the people who in some way, big or small, contribute to this church. Now I could go on on through here. But because of time. That, that terrible thing time. I'm going to stop right here and just say this. Read what Gail read this morning. Verses 9 through 21. And let that dwell in your heart. And see if you are not transformed by those words. Prayerfully read that. And let it transform you. And find that when you release all that judgmentalism and the hatred and the resentment and the jealousies and everything else, find that you are happier. You are more at peace. And then the effect outside of you, into your family, into this church, will be great. Folks, uh, Romans 12, we know 1 Corinthians 13 about love. Romans 12 gives us practical love. The last thing I'll say on that, it's an interesting thing. You find through there, he also enjoins us to resist evil and to do what is good. And it's apparent from his definition of love that love isn't simply being nice to each other. That love is being concerned for each other also. And when we see someone straying, when we see someone's faith weakened, that we will step in, even though you might say, this is risky. I'm getting into personal territory here. But you love them enough, enough to risk it to say, I think I need to talk with you. And to do it in love and with compassion and to say, "Is you know what's going on in your life? Why is it you haven't been uh, at the assembling of the saints uh, at, at church on Sunday for a while? Why did you drop out of this? Why? To have the, enough love for somebody to put yourself on the line. It's not just a thing of being nice. Uh, Jesus could have come into the world and just been a nice guy for 30-some years. But instead, he came into the world and he put his life on the line. And he told people, this is truth. And because of that, they killed him. And that's what we are to be, not seeking martyrdom, <laughs> not seeking to be killed for these things, but willing to put our lives on the line for each other. It's a, it's a dramatic and very important scripture. And like I say, I would encourage you to... Uh, to look at that this week. This is the end of our service because, uh, I did reset the clock up here back an hour, but it didn't, didn't give me another hour for some reason. But, uh, I appreciate you being here. I hope that if, uh, uh, you have someone especially who, who passed away in the last year, some of you very recently have lost loved ones, parents, and, and uh, I know your hearts are grieving, husbands, uh, wives, uh, but I hope that, uh, today will be a marker of faith in your lives that will strengthen you to know that God is with you. And as I have felt and came to recognize after losing my mother and father uh, within the same year, that uh, uh, over time I came to recognize an incredible feeling that they are still with me. I'll never lose them because they are alive with Christ. And amen. Now go, go forward out of this place with the melody of peace reigning in your hearts. Remembering that your love must be sincere, that we are to be devoted to one another in love, honoring one another above ourselves, never lacking in zeal, but keeping our spiritual fervor in serving the Lord. May you be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, and may you share with the Lord's people who are in need as you practice the hospitality of our Lord Jesus Christ, who asks us to enter into his heart and to know his peace.